Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast. And today, as you heard on Stick Together, if you were listening just before this program began, uh, we've got a little taster from... uh, the uh, May Day celebrations that were held outside the Victorian Trades Hall on May the sixth. Uh, we, you may have heard on Melbourne uh, on Monday breakfast, uh, Jacob uh, Gritch's speech. I'm going to replay it because it was the speech of the day. Uh, extraordinary speech, and it was about how the uh, various governments in this country are moving towards. Uh, the uh, armaments industry as a way of uh, revivifying the Australian manufacturing industries and acting as if, as uh, Jacob uh, put it in his uh, extraordinary way, where uh, you have an economy that prays that there will be war because otherwise uh, workers will lose their jobs. A disgusting fate for Australian manufacturing. And so it was, it's worth playing again. So, uh, it was a big day down at, uh, on May the 6th, uh, bigger than usual. Uh, it, I mean, if you're an older member of our audience, you will remember huge May Day marches. Uh, but uh, over the last few years, the, it's uh, been receding a little bit like uh, a low tide. Uh, but now it's sort of uh, rebuilding and it was re- rebuilding to the massive march that uh, happened on May the 9th here in Melbourne. Thousands, uh, it was, you know, some people said 120,000, but it was uh, a huge uh, march where uh, people were still coming round corners as they stopped finally at the uh, corner of uh, Flinders Street and uh, Swanston Street. I've only got a small taster from that particular event. Uh, they travelled from uh, outside uh, Trades Hall down to the Magistrates Court because on the same day and the, on the same hour, <coughs> uh, John Setka, Secretary of the Victorian uh, CFMEU Construction Division, and Sean Ridden, his uh, lieutenant, were in Magistrates Court because you might remember last year there was they were arrested in front of their families on a Sunday, uh, in a sort of a, <laughs> on a, you know, they were just going about their business in the car, family car, and, and, uh, cops come out in a sort of exaggerated way and uh, arrest them, and, uh, they get, uh, charged with, uh, uh, blackmail, 
uh, it's uh, 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 implying that there's uh, that while they were going about their industrial uh, union business uh, went over uh, the line and uh, have entered into some sort of illegal sort of menacing uh, behaviours towards an employer. Anyway, it's gone into court. Uh, as uh, one person said, uh, that uh, it's the court proceedings are beginning to reveal uh, uh, the ludicrous nature of the whole affair, but uh, it will drag on and on and on. It's part of the federal government's push to try and discredit union uh, leaders uh so they can push in this outrageous uh, law, which uh, is uh, supposed to give uh, the government and bosses the rights to choose who will be the leadership of uh, unions, which is just an oxymoron when you consider that uh, unions are supposed to be representative membership of their membership. Ludicrous, as well as uh, when you think about the tug of war that is the class struggle. Uh, that just tells you why it was so important that uh, there is a fight back at the moment in regards to uh, what's uh, going on in the industrial landscape in Australia. So we'll listen first to Jacob, then we'll move on to a small speech uh, from the CPSU representative, uh, uh, um, Karen Batt, because Karen's uh, organisation, People Who Work For The Government, are uh, being uh, have an enforced cap of two percent increase in wages, which leads us magically to talking to uh, Don Sutherland uh, about what happened at the budget and the lies, the lies, the lies, which magically takes us to this week, the week that was, and follows us up with uh, what's uh, expected with public housing in Victoria as we lead up to the Victorian election. And I guess the reason for why, one of the reasons for why the rally on May the 9th in Melbourne didn't end up on the steps of Parliament House, because of course in Victoria we have a Labor government, uh, and ended up on the steps of Flinders Street Station instead. For the November 2018 state elections, Victorian socialists and left-wingers are coming together to get a socialist elected to the upper house for the northern metropolitan region. Leading the ticket is long-time Yarra councillor Stephen Jolly, followed by Moreland councillor Sue Bolton from the Socialist Alliance and Colleen Bolger from the Socialist Attorney. Victorian socialists will officially be launching our campaign on Saturday the 12th of May from 7pm at the Grace Darling Hotel at 114 Smith Street in Collingwood. Come along to find out more about our campaign and how you can get involved. It will be an opportunity to hear from the candidates and local community residents on the importance of getting a socialist into Parliament and presenting a political alternative from the major capitalist parties. A 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen and you're listening to 3CR. Comrades, first of all, we need to acknowledge, as other speakers have done before me, that we're standing on land not ceded the land of the cooler nation, but land of people. And it's particularly pertinent to what I'm going to say to you today because this is a nation which is founded on war. I was in Canberra recently at the rally to recognise the frontiers war, frontier wars, and um, this is a nation that was based on war. 
And Australia, might surprise you, is currently involved in 12 overseas operations. We've got military, boots on the ground, ships on the sea, planes in the air, in 12, 12 operations covering about 18 countries outside of our sovereign borders, illegal as they might be. And that's not only... As, as in addition to that, we also have the undeclared wars. We've got our comrades over here from West Papua, for example, who are still fighting an undeclared war for independence and who the Australian Federal Police, not the military, but the quasi-military, are over there playing a much less than noble role. All the way from South Sudan to the South Pacific and closer to home through Operation Sovereign Borders, where we have our military picking up people on boats, civilians, non-combatants, locking them away in prisoner of war style concentration camps in places like Nauru and Manus Island and Christmas Island. There are still 1,500 people on Christmas Island, though it often gets left off the list. For, the, for no crime, but for fleeing... For fleeing the destruction that all the wars that Australia is involved in is causing to their homes. So we're bombing them, and then when they run away, try to come to Australia for a better life, we're then picking them up on the water and putting them in concentration camps. This country is still based on the military. And also, not just what we're doing, but through our involvement in the alliance with the United States and Great Britain through operations, through the operation of bases like Pine Gap and Kodjerima and Saltwater Bay, we're involved, we're implicated, more than involved, we're implicated in every last bombing raid, every last drone strike that any of these countries undertakes in an arc stretching from the Middle East across to the South China Sea. Australia is involved in so many wars and on the home front. The home front against Indigenous people and also, more and more, the home front against all of us. We have an announcement in this year's state budget. There's been talk here about the federal budget and the Libs, but the state budget's not much better in the way they're arming the police with such things as um, capsicum gas canisters, rubber bullets rubber shells. Now, they tell us now that they're not going to be used against us, they're only going to be used in terms of riot as a non-lethal alternative to shooting people, which is exactly what I and some of you stood on these steps and heard about cap gas and tasers 30 years ago. Now their common usage, so common that they're using them against disabled pensioners in Preston. Once the, once the police, the paramilitary, have these weapons, how long before it's going to be used on workers? Not long at all. And this is the state government, our government. Not the fascist Tories doing that. This is our mob. Now, Trades Hall has been involved against war and against oppression for a long time. Fifteen years ago, a few of the people I see here today 
We're sitting in one of the rooms behind me here, organising the biggest peace rallies that this country has ever seen in 2003. Before that, we were involved in the anti-Vietnam War moratorium. Before that, going back a long way, you can see by the murals on the inside of the doors there, the anti-conscription movement of the First World War, where workers came together and said, we will not go to war. And I want to talk about 100 years ago, because not just here, but it was all over the world. There was an American trade unionist and socialist named George Ross Kirkpatrick. And 102 years ago on May Day, he gave a speech where he spoke about the economics of war. And he spoke about the horrors of war. And he referred to Lenin's admonition that a bayonet was just a weapon with a worker on either end. But then he went to speak about other weapons. He said, for example, now this is going to sound quaint in 2018, but in 1916, he said, put aside ideas of chivalry. Today's modern weapons can take out a six-inch pine post at a distance of 100 yards in under two minutes. What chance has a worker's body got against such devilry? And you compare that to the kind of weapons you've got now where we can take out a village, we can take out the whole pine forest and the village in it in under two seconds from the other side of the world. And so George Kirkpatrick asked the workers to take a pledge. He said, pledge that I will not kill another worker, another worker's son, another worker's father, another worker's brother. And yes, it was sexist language, not just because of the time, but in those days... Wars were basically two groups of men shooting at each other, not indiscriminate strafing of civilian villages that it is now. And more than ever, we have these weapons. This year, particularly, the weapons push in Australia, the, the aim to produce more and more and more efficient and economic ways of killing people is proceeding at a rate unimagined even 10 years ago. On Invasion Day, the eve of Invasion Day, ironically enough, they don't have a sense of irony, this government, they announced $3.8 billion facilitation program to export Australian weapons all around the world to kill people with. Then on the eve of Anzac Day, they announced the Defence, Cap the Defence Industry Capability Plan, the DIC Plan. The idea is to, is to give our engineering and research sectors a a boost by moving us towards a defence economy. Keeping workers' jobs by giving them the dick is what they're doing, looking at retooling our industry. Now, and then on May Day, because these people, as I said, have no sense of irony, on May Day, last Tuesday, the 1st of May, they announced the first recipient of those grants, and that's a company called Leonardo. Now, we bought some helicopters off them 10 years ago for $5 billion that we haven't been able to use yet because their gearboxes don't work. So as the first part of this plan was giving them $16 million to put new tools in their factory in Port Melbourne to fix the gearboxes we've already paid for. And this company, Leonardo, the ninth largest defence company in the world, this is not an Australian business, you've never heard of them before, you might have heard of the name... Finn Mechanica. They're an Italian firm. They were created by the Italian government in the middle of World War II. And their CEO at the moment is Benito Mussolini's grandson. 
These are the kind of people that we're giving money to. Can you imagine what $16 million would do if it were given to Earthworker to actually produce something useful that workers could use in workers' control factory? But no, we're giving this to fascist ideologues to build war machines. The other announcement that came out on May Day was, remember, we were going to have tanks built in Port Melbourne at the old Holden factory, and we lost that contract to Queensland. The state government was up in arms, calling the Australian government traitorous and all kinds of things, because we wanted to build the tanks. Well, that moved to Queensland, and it was announced on Tuesday, May Day, that we get the consolation prize of having a lightweight materials research centre built here in, I think, at Swinburne University with Defence Science Technology, CSIRO and the company involved in the tanks. And the company that built the tanks is a company called Rheinmetall, a German company that built the Panzer tanks and the, railway, and the railways for the Third Reich. Is, do you see a pattern emerging here? We're giving the same companies... We're giving the same companies who made their money from supplying the fascist war machine and we're still funding them in Australia today and using the excuse of jobs and growth. Well, I think it's bullshit. And it's not just the big ticket items. Everywhere around Melbourne. In Geelong, we're built... Because no-one builds a plane anymore. In Geelong, we're building the tail flaps... No, sorry, the wing flaps for the new Lockheed Martin C-130 Super Hercules, which is being used to bomb Iraq and bomb Syria, and who knows where it'll be bombed by the time we finish building the flaps. Up in Thomastown, we're building landing gear for the F-35s. Down in Warren Ponds, we're building lightweight ropes for aircraft carriers. Every step of the way, our industry is being retooled to service the military. And as... George Kirkpatrick pointed out, what chance do workers have against this friggin' devilry? We have none. It's time we truly decide to change the rules and fold our hands and say we will not build the weapons. To take George Kirkpatrick's pledge of we will not kill another worker's father, another worker's brother, another worker, and say we will not build the weapons specifically designed anymore to kill other workers' families. Because when you have an economy dependent on one industry, there's a name for it for a start, banana republics, you've heard of them, whole countries who depend on one industry. When you have an economy dependent on one industry, then what's good for that industry becomes good for the economy. And what's good for the economy is good for the people in the economy. Do we want a situation where we're worried peace will break out? We're worried there'll be peace talks because every one of the top ten military companies in the world last week lost between one and three and a half percent off their share price when the Korean peace talks were announced. Are we going to cry when there are peace talks because it will mean lost jobs? Are we going to cheer when Israel attacks Gaza again, like they're doing at the moment? Because conversely, Elbit Industries, Israeli arms companies, share price had boosted 2% with the deaths of 68 Palestinian activists on the Gaza-Israel border 
in the last couple of weeks. Comrades, I say to you, we do not want that economy. We don't want to pursue it. We don't want to advocate it. We don't even want to put up with it and say, if we didn't do it, someone else will. Because frankly, that's the excuse, that's the reasoning of the smack dealer. I say in 2018, we say no to the government's arms drive. We say we will not build the weapons designed to kill other workers. And that's all there is to it. Happy May Day, comrades. Uh, howdy there, my name's Tim Rogers, uh, D-list celebrity de jour, here at the uh, May Day March and, uh, day here outside Trades Hall. And uh, it's my pleasure to be on 3CR with you today. All the best. The seriously funny Rod Quantock will be at Steps Gallery in Carlton to open a fundraising art show at 3pm on Saturday, May 19th. Works by Arthur Boyd, Lunig, First Dog on the Moon and many, many more will be on sale. There'll be political cartoons from the present and posters from the past, as well as artworks of beauty, joy and wit. All proceeds will support ICANN, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, and winner of last year's Nobel Peace Prize and ICANN's parent organisation, MAPWA. Health professionals promoting peace. All welcome. ICANN and MAPWA are 3CR supporters. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and we've just been listening to the magnificent Jacob Gritch. What a fantastic speech. It was the speech of the day at May Day, May the 6th outside Victoria Trades Hall. Uh, If you want to hear more of uh, Jacob, uh, he's on 3CR. Uh, Friday Rave, uh, 5pm on uh, Friday. Uh, He is a bright man. Uh, Coming up next, we've got a little snippet from the speeches that were given at uh, the May the 9th massive uh, uh, rally in Melbourne that was the finale to the 12 Days of Action from the ACTU uh, campaign for Change the Rules. Uh, The uh, focus, of course, is to uh, change the uh, industrial laws that are uh, binding workers in a situation where uh, Australia has got an increasing inequality arrangement uh, that is... uh, uh, just uh, hand, you know, making workers unable to actually uh, live a reasonable life, uh, insecure work, uh, cutting uh, penalty rates, and uh, a whole range of other uh, outrageous things like uh, chucking out EBAs and uh, going back to the modern award, which uh, removes all the conditions that have been fought for for decades uh, in one foul swoop. Now, uh, there's going to be a full report of that uh, mass rally on Stick Together for next week. So I thought I'd just get a small snippet of this massive rally that uh, did literally shut Melbourne down, uh, the central business district uh, of Melbourne. Uh, It was interesting being part of the rally because I was watching the people on the pavements. They seemed to be in awe and they also seemed to be... uh, uh, happy that uh, some action was being uh, taken because they are obviously feeling the pain as well, uh, even if they weren't walking in the rally. But anyway, this is Kate Batt from the CPSU. Now, the CPSU is the union that is that represents public servants. And uh, despite uh, the uh, 
in the past, working for public service was a, a good, safe job. Uh, ever since uh, the uh, the LNP governments have been in, uh, they've been at the uh, brunt of the uh, anti-worker campaign coming out of uh, the federal government. All right, comrades, I'd like to introduce our second speaker at this end. Please welcome Karen Back. She is the State Secretary of the Community Public Sector Union. Thank you, Will. If only you could see yourselves from the stage here, it is awesome. Well done, Melbourne! CPSU members are here today to declare we will fight with all our comrades across the union movement. We will fight to change the rules for the interest of all our members across the national and state tiers of government. We are over two million workers strong. Standing up for public services has always been a fight we've taken on. Government become our employers. Whether here in Victoria, New South Wales, Western Australia or South Australia, Queensland, Tasmania or the national government, our members never forgot the behaviour and the damage done by the likes of Kennett, then Bailiu, Baird, now Bajillican, Court, then Barnett, Brown, Newman in Queensland, Grumman, now Hodgman in Tasmania, Howard, Abbott and Turnbull. Send them a message, everybody. Their extreme agenda has always been consistent across the three decades I've been involved. To abolish the independent umpire, making access to dispute resolution conditional on their consent. To remove organised worker representatives, or in other words, unions, from the bargaining table by introducing the concept of non-union bargaining reps. Using their legislative powers to abolish conditions of employment they don't like and replacing them with inferior terms and counselling pay rises unless workers agree to sign away their protected entitlements. Using corrupted ballot processes to use non-unionists, casuals, people no longer employed, or those working in another state like the SO men are dealing with at the moment, to put a ballot to co of a collective agreement that is non-union and strips away the conditions that have long been fought for. Only offering collective agreements to some and forcing others onto individual contracts. Forcing unions to, forcing workers to choose between a job or a non-union agreement when the service they delivered is privatised. But across the country and across the jurisdictions, CPSU members have fought election after election to change our employer and then change the rules. We have won and we will win this time. We all know the power of a fair and independent umpire. We know the power of workplace rights, the power that comes from dignity and secure work, the power of a real wage based on the value of the job done and the contribution made. Our members who work for the national government are confronting the challenges I've just outlined right now. The system is stacked against their pursuit of secure jobs or real wage increases because the federal government behaves as a bully employer. Our members who 
work in the federal court, in the Department of Health and Human Services, and in the Bureau of Meteorology, have been trying to negotiate a fair EBA for the best part of five years. They are being deliberately, economically, literally starved as they have received no pay rises since June 2013. This is why CPSU says the rules must change. Our members in the Department of Home Affairs, whose claims for a fair outcome have been dragging on in fair work since 2016 with no end in sight. This is why the, end, the rules must change. All our members in these agencies are fighting for respect and dignity at work which is denied them by their employer, manipulating the outdated and broken bargaining rules. They are all here today and I'd ask you to give them a round of applause for standing up to the bully federal government. They, like you, will fight the changes, they will fight to change the rules. We all stand here today to help change the rules for them, for all Australia's public sector workers. CPSU pledges here today to fight for a better country and for a fair go for all working people. Here's a takeaway message that the CPSU is going to give Malcolm Turnbull today. You can ignore us or think we're all fools, but we are mobilising in the millions to change the rules. Change the rules! Give it up for the public sector unions! I say union, you say power! Union! Power! Union! Power! I say union, you say power! Union! Power! Union! Power! Union! Power! All right, up next... I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. And that was the magnificent uh, Melbourne band La Bastard. Uh, everything sounds much better in French, quite clearly. And you aren't alone if you're part of the union, as was quite made quite clear on May the 9th. And on the line, we have uh, Don Sutherland in Sydney. How are you, Don? How are you? I'm really well, thank you. Uh, Annie, and I hope you and all your listeners are the same. Yes. Now we're... Great to be back. Yeah, yeah, it's great to be back and it's good to talk to you because we're going to talk about uh, uh, why wage increases are more important than tax cuts and, uh, in fact, the skullduggery of the federal uh, budget. Yet again, they proved to be the biggest liars in town. Yes, and it comes after a period of uh, magnificent uh, working-class action Um especially, I think, in two places stand out for me over the past uh, a couple of days. Obviously, the headline one is the magnificent 
uh, event in Melbourne on May the 9th. Yeah, it was uh, amazing. Uh, what, what a great statement from the Victorian working class for so many people to come out on a working day and demonstrate their support for big changes to the rules regarding industrial action. And I suspect a lot of people there would have been wanting uh, big changes to the broken rules in other parts of our lives, like the banking system, uh, climate change mitigation and so on. Yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, the, uh, the other one, though, that we ought to pay tribute to. to very quickly is that on Canberra, in the ACT, the union movement actually st- uh, marched on May Day itself, May the 1st. Mm. And to my knowledge, the only part of the Australian working class that joined in in a public demonstration with the millions of other workers in other parts of the world who also did the same thing on May the 1st. So I think we perhaps Australia's smallest organised labour or union movement uh, bit the bullet and took their action on May the 1st. Well yes. done to Alexander White and the rest of the activists in Canberra for doing that. Um, and if I be, may be a little bit cheeky, I think there's two books I'd like to quickly recommend for everyone that bear upon what, in, in a distant way, upon what we're going to talk about. There's the wonderful little book by uh, Helen Razor called Total Propaganda that is really useful, particularly if you're interested in finding out more about Marx and Marxism. It's a very readable introduction. Yeah, hilarious. In your generation. And the other one, the wonderful, apparently, although I haven't read it, it's very, very popular, well-reviewed. The autobiography of one Peggy Seeger, the half-sister of Pete, yep. who was uh, married to a bloke called Ewan McColl. Uh, they, they came to Australia in the early 70s in a magnificent tour. They, sing, they sang working-class songs, and after he died, Peggy has kept that going. And, of course, that famous song by Roberta Flack was written by Ewan McColl for Peggy the first time ever I saw your face. Oh, wow. And listeners may like to go to YouTube to see a version of that song that is, in my view, uh, equally as good, although I think even better when you hear Peggy sing that oh, song. Oh, it's a beautiful song. song it is a really beautiful yeah. song. Yeah, right. So on to the federal budget. Yeah, yeah. No, well, what was fascinating to me about the looking at the background material, which I, I must say, I actually went and listened to Humphrey McQueen on the budget night, <laughs> which was probably a good thing to do. But um, having now looked at the material, um, they the, the mainstream media went along with the game that the federal government uh, publicity re- Ports were putting out, which was that the centrepiece was that there were going to be tax cuts for the uh, uh, middle, lower and middle earners, uh, and of course ta- uh, workers, uh, and of course for them that would sound fantastic. But of course they, they just lied. Um, well, whether they lied or not is, in a sense. Not the main question. Oh no! Well, before you go on to why why it's it's not the main question, the reason for why it's a stunning lie is because none of this none of these tax reductions would come into ex, uh, into effect until two thousand and twenty two, which is three federal elections away. Yes, bizarre. And, uh, that, that 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 is that is correct. There there is a small modest uh, tax cut 
in, in inverted commas, that would begin in 2000, at, at the end of 2018-19 as a lump sum tax offset. And that is, that it, there is such a thing that already exists for low-income earners, but that gets increased and extended to a bigger part of taxpayers. However, you have to fill in your tax return, yes, uh, first. And the gain you get for it in no way matches or is... It, it works out at about $10 a week at the best. Uh, some would get less than that. But that's only if, after you've done your tax return. So uh, there is a lot of uh, BS in the presentation of the budget. To go to your point on the longer term, and then we must come back to... What the, the main point you're making, which is you know where the lies and inverted commas come in, which is the really crazy assumptions that this budget makes, which are totally misleading. Uh, the main effect, if you go to that long run, that is into that period from 2024-25, which is what Morrison is trying to bluff the crossbenchers into passing the total package, not just the immediate budget, if you are on, uh, let's say, 60 grand and the situation is marginally the same if you're on less, if you're on 60 grand a year, the after-tax gain in your net income in 2024-25 is 1.1%. If you're on 200,000, that is, if you're a lawyer or a highly paid accountant, the gain after tax for you is 5.4%. Unbelievable. That's not even taking the gap in wages. So that's the con. Yeah. And uh, uh, so if you're a cleaner, there's SFA, if I may use that expression. But if you are a highly paid accountant or lawyer helping out corporate Australia, you're awarded with a 5.4% gain in net income. But but if you were it were to get the annual wage increase that uh, stopped happening in about 2012, the situation would be quite different, wouldn't it? Yes, yes. What we have to do to understand all of this is remember or focus upon some of the assumptions and the most we've only got time for one perhaps, and that is in the area of wages. So when a budget, a federal budget is produced, the government also makes certain assumptions about what's going to happen in the future, particularly about the revenue that it will take, the tax revenue it will take from uh, corporations and other employers on the one hand and also from wage earners. Now, the assumptions, uh, on uh, we all know what they intend in terms of reducing the total tax case from uh, corporate Australia and other employers, they're reducing that, but they make certain assumptions about wages. And these are absolutely crazy. The budget's assumption is that wages are going to grow at about 3.5% per year. Now, that, that's, how they, that's how they work out what income, they, what revenue they're going to get from wage earners. Yeah, yeah. So what you're saying is, no, no. Before you before you go on, what you're saying is that this this particular budget is just complete hocus pocus because the uh, amounts of money that they're projecting that they're going to get 
can't possibly happen given their policy policies and and uh, the situation that is actually happening at the moment? Well, because of both their industrial relations policies, which is to screw down on workers' capacity to increase their wages, but at the same time their own budgetary arrangements. In the budgetary arrangements, well, the actual compensation, the actual increases that are going on at the moment are just over 1%. That's just about everyone knows. But in the budget forecast, remember, 3.5% is what they project will happen. Their own directive to Commonwealth departments when uh, negotiating pay increases is to keep them at 2% or below. And people have to remember that the government is at, it's still at the moment, even though they've been outsourcing, are the biggest employer in Australia. That's correct. That's correct. Now, they're just full uh, of it, Don. They're just full of it. Pardon? They're just it's full of it. It, it, it. Yes, its underpinnings are entirely, um, the polite word is heroic, but um, perhaps the word BS <laughs> is or the... Or the that phrase is a better way of describing it, and, it, and that's where the con is constructed. The, it, Jim Stanford at the Australia Institute has done some calculations comparing the coalition's tax plan with what you would get on if you did get a 3.5% pay increase, 3.5% being plucked because it is the number plucked by the federal government. If you're on, say, forty grand a year, then an annual, then the coalition tax plan gives you two hundred and ninety bucks. This, this is um, two thousand and twenty-one onwards, which is the year that you were talking about. Mm. Um, so forty thousand dollars a year you get from the coalition tax plan. You get two hundred and ninety dollars. If you did get that three point five percent wage increase that the coalition budget uh, projects, you'd be getting four thousand seven hundred and eighty dollars. Yeah, bit of a difference. It's a bit of a difference, and then the numbers are also there in Jim's work. If you go to the Australia Institute, you can see it for a whole range of incomes. Now, this is, I think this the next point that flows from this, and this is to do with the, uh, the, the construction of this particular budget, is particularly insidious in the sense that it is, it is extremely insidious because... Morrison is trying to say, let's pass this year's budget, but to get this year's budget with the, the lovely $10 a week on average that you pick up uh, after you do your tax return as a lump sum, you only get that if you agree to the budget as it would be shaped in 2021, uh, 2021 22 and 2024-25. In other words, it's, it, it, it is a budget that is a in this sense. All budgets are statements of intent and there is no technical reason why in the budget year as it operates that a government has to stick by it. And so that leads to the budget for the following year. The budget is a guide for how the government is going to collect revenue and spend uh, uh, collect revenue and spend. So each year, any government, including this one, if by some uh, uh, process gets re-elected, it could easily change all of this from one budget year to the next. 
Well, uh, uh, forgive me, Don, but they'd have to because none of their their figures are all rubbery. As it's been pointed out by uh, Jim Stanford, uh, they actually started their calculations from uh, a point that's not actually existent. Uh, they they said that uh, um, the uh, that it was uh, from two. Uh, what was it? Uh, two point five. Was the um, three point five percent on wages? Yeah, yeah. That the, that uh, wages have been growing by two point five percent, when in actual fact, uh, that that even using their own uh, system, which doesn't the wage, uh, which doesn't actually take into account a whole range of other things, the WPI, that it's only been two percent. So they've actually um, they they're just plucking. Figures out of the air and showing that uh, uh, showing their contempt of the general population. Well, the I would add with two objectives. One obviously is to construct a budget that gets themselves re-elected, uh, and I don't think they're making much progress on that. <laughs> the second one is more more ser- is more serious, and that is to introduce ultimately a uh, a flat tax. Yes. System. That was exactly what I was going to get to. to. Yeah, they've been wanting to do that since the late 80s, at least. Uh, Particularly the right-wing think tanks in this this particular government is very influenced by uh, the Institute of Policy Affairs, uh, the IPA, and um, they they operate in Melbourne, of course, and they are extremely right-wing, and they they actually criticise this budget for not going fast enough. Oh goodness! So what we're explaining to people here is that uh, ultimately uh, the situation that they're talking about is combined with early increases in the tax threshold. This will result in an almost flat income tax system in Australia, in which the vast majority of Australians will pay the same thirty-two point five percent rate of tax on their incomes between forty-one thousand dollars and two hundred thousand dollars per year. This means that someone earning just $45,000 a year will pay the same marginal tax rate as someone earning four times as much. And this means that basically they uh, it's actually an ideological attack on the very concept of progressivity that underpins our tax and transfer system. Once you do that, of course, that means that you must cut the, the essential range of social services. Uh, services in spending. And that that extends uh, not just to the really serious ones, uh, like uh, uh, especially like health, uh, uh, public health, public education, public housing and public transport, uh, which means that those particular vital services will be transferred in their provision to private providers who will then charge higher rates for them on a, on a population in the main is going to be le- earning less. And on, and on so many... On the very big ticket item yeah. on climate change mitigation, there's going to be less money for that, and that is intended. Yeah. That's you know, you know, big... Don, you have to say that if you were a teacher and you were uh, marking this budget, you would have to give it an F. On the other hand, if you were a part of corporate Australia... You would probably give it a probably an A minus. Ah, oh, just unbelievable! These people are really a diabolical crew. 
It, well, it's it's a it's they are they are class warriors and very serious about it. And the big effort will be to try and convince people that this is a responsible way of uh, running things. And the focal point will be on this, uh, what I'll call it a pathetic bribe. But for people who are desperate, the idea yeah. that they're going to pick up uh, 500 bucks, uh, that's the top end, uh, which is roughly 10 bucks a year. That which I'll have to tell if you. They're thinking, if they're thinking, if, if, if big numbers of people are thinking, that they or friends of theirs will be able to pay their energy bills with that for one quarter, that that will make a difference. Well, you know what they should do, Don. I have to finish you here, but I'll tell you because we've come to the end. But uh, what people should do is actually change their banking accounts from uh, banks that charge them uh, a, a, um, a fee, an account fee, and they will accumulate exactly the same amount of money they, all they have to do is go to a bank that doesn't charge them an account fee and it accumulates to about the same amount of money yearly. Did you know that? Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't no, I hadn't worked, I haven't done that calculation. Yeah, it's about before. 500 and can something I, can dollars. Can I just wrap up? Because yeah. I know you're pressed for time. Yeah. He said, I think we also have to start a discussion and then eventually a strategy uh, for an alternative way of producing a budget. Oh, uh, yes. Being to the left of the ALP, yeah. I think that the discussion about an Australian approach to participatory budget preparation and delivery is uh, each time has come. And participatory budget basically means that a government formally and statutorily constructs a process whereby uh, the mass of the population are enabled, if they wish, to participate through association and collectors in defining what the priorities of the budget should be for their region and their localities. That's really interesting. This, That's similar to uh, what GetUp does with its on a much smaller scale when it talks about getting a vote for what are the important issues. Um, uh, yes, where, where it's different is that, um, uh, firstly, uh, it, it is statutory enabled, of course. Secondly, that the... The purpose is that ultimately, in the process, the, the government expenditure is formally transferred to the formally constructed people's association or organisation to actually deliver the project. Mm. And the intention of that is to cu- cut out the, the politics. Whereby, uh, well, the process of uh, you know mateship. Uh, that enables uh, uh, contracting uh, favours to be delivered and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So now there's a lot more to participatory budgeting. Um, the Workers' Party in Brazil uh, first started the idea uh, and uh, the, it is now practised in a number of municipalities or even around the USA and in Europe. Uh, and uh, it's, it's also got hairs on it in some ways. It does need constant improvement. Um, there have been problems, but I think um, we can't talk about this capitalist way of uh, the government constructing a budget without also talking about the importance of a genuine alternative, which if you go into a socialist alternative, then you have to talk about a way in which the mass of the population can democratically participate in controlling government, government, uh, to some extent at least, Uh, government uh, taxation and spending. All right, Don, 
Thanks for talking to me. Great to be back and look forward to the next time. Thank you. A weak solidarity, Becky team listener, when US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, was forced to abort the Iran anti-nuclear agreement because he said the Iranians can't be trusted. They made a deal and proved untrustworthy. Bad, bad. In what way? that They observed the conditions of the agreement. That's what I said. Untrustworthy. How can you trust someone who sticks to an agreement? No, seriously, good, good liberty, freedom and democracy, peace, love and Zion alerted the US of to the dangers posed by evil Iran observing the agreement. The cascading rush to nuclear warfare to evil Iran attacking every peace-loving country in the whole world like Zion and the US of, and liberty, freedom and democracy, love, peace, love and Saudi, which also warned Donald the Iranian theocracy was a pack of apostates. And Donald said this showed the depths of their evil, even though he had no idea what it meant. And the US of the world, world court located in Wall Street, would prosecute and hit with massive multi-trillion penalties, including seizing the U.S. of assets, any European company so disloyal to the U.S. of that it continues dealing with Iran just because Iran has observed the agreement. And those European co-signatories are too ignorant to understand that anybody who keeps an agreement can't be trusted. Worse... Donald explained. In business, they're as likely as not to spill the beans. Very bad. Very, very bad. Within minutes of Donald's announcement, this is true, the US of ambassador to Germany warned German companies they must stop dealing with Iran immediately or face the consequences. A trip to the Wall Street World Court. And almost before Donald finished his announcement, Peace, Love and Zion, Big Supremo, Benjamin, not another Yahoo, was forced to bomb the proverbial out of targets in Syria to teach evil Iran it can't invade other countries and bomb the proverbial out of them. Because evil Iran was so stupid, it fired missiles towards Zion again while Donald was still denouncing it for sticking to the agreement. And we know it was so stupid because Zion said it fired missiles. Donald then turned his attention to that other great threat to peace on Earth, evil North Korea, and he's meeting with its evil leader, although I'm sure they could have an invaluable conversation about their respective hairdressers. But beyond tonsorial matters, Donald graciously proffered that I believe he wants to bring his country into the real world. So obviously he'd be advised to have nothing to do with Donald or the US of. Donald did say that bit about the real world, but I'm sure as an astute listener, listener, you'd worked out some of the other quotes must have been my paraphrasing, for some of them are actually sentences. Before returning to True Blue Aussie, excitement as Malaysia changed government for the first time in 61 years of post-colonial independence. Democracy in action, replacing a corrupt authoritarian with, with, hang on, with the previous corrupt authoritarian. Yippee! Now, true blue Aussie. Oh, and of course, there was a budget this week. Right, tick that off. We've covered that. The big four banks buried their differences, and we bet right now they wish they could bury their non-differences, buried their differences, the great spirit of competition that drives them to make a joint statement they now recognise the problems, to put it kindly, being exposed daily. It's quite clear. They made it quite clear. 
what the problem is. Yeah, okay, very good, but what is it? It's the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission. Uh, but, but it's uncovered the problems, to, to put it kindly. Exactly. And that's the problem. The problem is they uncovered the problems, to, to put it kindly. Exactly. That's what I just said. Please listen. But how is it the problem? Oh, isn't it obvious? If it hadn't been for the bloody Royal Commission, it would be business as usual and nobody would be the wiser. But it can no longer be business as usual, at least until things settle down. The dust settles, so to speak. So obviously, obviously, the Royal Commission is bad for business, and that's bad for the country, for investment, for jobs and growth, for workers whom we so care about to receive a much-deserved, long-overdue wage rise. Uh, then why not just give them a wage rise? Sorry, sorry, are you okay? Are you all right? Didn't mean to upset you. Thus, we asked the Minister for something to do with all this and for getting the caring business class's hands on all that lovely union super Kelly O'Dwyer workers so evil, who made sure getting the caring business class's hands on all that lovely union super was on the Royal Commission's agenda, whether she still thought it critical for the good of the workers whom she so cares about to hand that lovely money over to the big banks and big financial institutions like AMP on the customers. Certainly. I didn't make sure it was in the terms of reference for nothing. No, no, for all the problems, uh, to put it kindly, let me finish, through all the problems that have been revealed, and I take credit for establishing the commission in the face of opposition, through it all, one thing is certain. They certainly know how to make the most of other people's money. <laughs> yes, good point, Kelly, but just remind me, what opposition? Well, mostly uh, Malcolm, uh, Scott, uh, Matthias uh, and me. And just to confirm the government's commitment to overcoming its opposition, not the Socialist Party opposition, but its opposition to establishing the Royal Commission it takes full credit for, tucked away in the budget was a $26 million cut to ASIC, the corporate regulator, and cuts to the Director of Public Prosecution's office amounting to a 23% staff cut over recent years. With the huge cost of the Royal Commission, Kelly explained, we had a fine saving somewhere and we're better than the bodies who may pursue the bodies. I dig them up, so to speak. Look after the Royal Commission and all the poor banks and huge financial institutions will have been through, rather than pursue the bodies, we'll all be better off allowing them to get on with business. And they'll have so much on their plate taking over all that lovely, lovely industry super money. Now, remember the daily sensational exposés during the previous Royal Commission the Crown Prosecutor, called Council Assisting, would list a litany of evil crimes by the evil unions, which would be sensation, sensation, P1, massive headlines and lead news services, heinous crimes like representing their members, which we know is illegal, and threatens the rights and, more importantly, the profits of their poor, caring employers. Then, when the allegations were refuted, when cross-examination was permitted, because in many cases he's on a new cross-examination to test the allegations would be a waste of time, indeed, the Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Constable Duffer, would declare any lawyer representing evil unions as untruly was he. When refuted, not a word, not even buried away under the comics. 
Well, Great Bank Worst Pack, as the case complained, that some interpretations of a financial report were misinterpreted by counsel assisting, and the media, particularly the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, devoted a whole page to support Worst Pack and declare the injustice of making untested allegations against the poor banks and financial institutions. And a P1 headline, Worst Pack Angry at Royal Commission Tactics which just shows the difference between evil unions and good, caring employers. Although I was tricked this week and I'm very angry. I went to this evil union rally thinking I was supporting a few changes in the way caring employers display that care, thinking, what a huge march. Well done, unions. Well done, ACTU. Then found I had been supporting crime. The True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review again alerting me the warbs had stopped progress. Industry, True Blue Aussie reputation as a reliable supplier because these lazy avaricious workers had taken unprotected industrial action. And I'm sure all they had to do was follow the law and they would have got permission. And the True Blue Aussie Mines and Metals Profits Association said this showed the amalgamation of maritime and construction unions can have immediate and damaging impacts on the economy, the community and our international reputation as a reliable place to invest and do business. Oh dear. So there I was, innocently damaging our reputation as a reliable place to invest and do business. You can't imagine how angry I am. And as the Minister for something to do with the caring business class, Matthias Rotten Tudor, continues to fight for tax cuts for the filthy rich just because that will lead to wage increases for workers, his real motive, well, pay rises over time, he said. Pity the latest figures from the US of show tax cuts for the filthy rich have not led to wage increases. Although good news, direct quote, stocks on Wall Street on Friday soared higher in reaction to the soft annual rise in average hourly earnings and an increase in jobs on lower pay. And economists said they couldn't understand why wages weren't rising. And I'm wondering if the possibility of greed crossed their minds. They did proper globalisation and technology, the mobility of labour and capital, robots, although finally the Bank of England chief economist was forced to put it down to those factors combined with the decline in evil union membership. By the by, no connection, whatever, but see, former big supremo nuclear hawk himself landed in hospital. Sadly, too late for the trade union movement. Anyway, the decline in evil union membership had direct quote, no embellishment, made it easier to divide and conquer workers' power. Doesn't it show how evil workers and unions are that the Bank of England is forced to resort to the language of class struggle when, like all caring employers, it knows there's no such thing? Good morning. During the 3CR Radiothon for 2018, Spoken Word presents an evening of live poetry featuring the outstanding talents of Jennifer Compton, Andy Jackson, Tariro Mavondo and Kylie Supsky plus an open mic recorded for broadcast on 3CR, Tuesday 15th of May from 7pm at Grub Food Van, 87 Moore Street, Fitzroy. And all proceeds go to 3CR Community Radio. Help keep independent, progressive voices on the air. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. And you are, you're on Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, thank you for the caller who rang in and told me that the station promotes anti-Semitism because uh, Kevin... 
uh, called Israel Zion, 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 whatever he calls it. <laughs> I can't even remember what he calls it. But anyway, by the by, um, just passing on, uh, just passing it on. And on the line, we've got Dr. Kate Shaw, Future Fellow, School of Geography, University of Melbourne. And the reason for why we've got you here, Kate, is because there's just a paper's just come out uh, documenting what happened at the forum, maximising the benefits of public housing renewal. Uh, that happened in December last year. And uh, it's really a response to the government, the state government's uh, public housing renewal program. Do you want to go through some of the things that were found from that event? Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that, that, big that, question. That's a big start. That's a, that's, that's a big start on the Saturday morning. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, hello. Hello, Kate. Hi, good morning. Um, and... Uh, um, yeah, the, the title of that forum was controversial. Um, I didn't want to call it that, uh, maximising the benefits of, of, uh, of, of public housing renewal. But uh, anyway, um, the, look, there have been three papers that have come out of that forum. Um, there is a small group of people who are delegated uh, by the forum to sort of follow up some of the... Um, Resolutions. Um, well, I must say, Kate, I was there, and it, there wasn't a very positive uh, feeling towards this thing called public housing renewal. Indeed. Um, um, so, so the forum had, oh, I don't know, pro- probably uh, about 150 representatives and members of. Um, sort of peak bodies, housing advocacy groups, tenants groups, you know, tenants associations, residents associations and so on. So, it was, it was, you know, it was a good representative body uh, and you get the feeling that there are probably many thousands of uh, people who are represented there. Um, and the main um, resolution was to call for a moratorium on the program, uh, which is now being rolled out as you know, I'm sure it's, uh, um, it's been done at, Ken- at Kensington. It's nearly complete in Carlton. Um, it's underway in Paran, and the government announced last year that it would go um, be rolled out on nine more in the city and middle suburban estates. So the resolution was to call for moratorium, a halt to the program, until some of the very real and serious issues had been worked out. Uh, so this small group, um, this sort of delegation, wrote to the Premier and the Treasurer and the Ministers um, for Housing and Planning, uh, Martin Foley and Dick Wynn, um, outlining that and why, uh, why we were calling for a halt, um, and of course got no response, um, yeah. no meaningful response. Now there, there's some there's some key issues that are involved in this, uh, the selling off of public uh, public land uh, to private developers uh, at cut, knockdown cut price rates, uh, the uh, building of fewer public uh, housing um, places, but increasing the amount of private dwellings, and uh, the false notion that uh, by having private and public together like this, uh, that there will be an integrating kind of effect between private and public? 
Yeah. <clears throat> so the 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 program is is um the you know the current program is premised on on yeah this model um, that old public housing stock is demolished. Um, the a, a private developer um, rebuilds some of that public housing, uh, and that's a controversial point, and I'll come back to it, uh, builds uh, a lot more private housing, um, and the land is indeed sold to the developer for amounts that are questionable. Um, and the sale of the private units constitutes the developer's profit, uh, as well as paying for the construction of the new public housing. Uh, so, I mean, the government comes out with this sort of line that it's about a social mix, you know, we need to bring um, you know, private residents onto these concentrations of poverty to somehow provide <laughs> private resident role modelling <laughs> and so on. Uh, but, I mean, nobody really believes that. Um, I don't think the government believes that. The, the reason why they're doing it is because they don't want to put their hands in their pockets. Um, and the sale of the public land uh, and the construction of private housing funds the construction of public new public housing. But as you say, uh, the problem with the construction of new public housing is that there's less of it and it's, <laughs> it's more concentrated because it's kind of shoved into a corner of the estate <laughs> so that you can make up for the uh, <laughs> make room for the private housing. Hey, um, d- d- and uh, you know the interesting thing is I mean you've there's a uh, the government has just allowed released a report that you were part of which was the evaluation of the Kensington redevelopment and place management models final report and it it withheld it for quite a long time which is kind of interesting. Um, yeah, the government didn't release it, actually. There was a parliamentary inquiry, an upper house inquiry, um, oh. and, and, and they actually they actually approached the government, the government, uh, you know, the DHHS, the Department of uh, Health and Human Services, to release it, and they wouldn't. <clears throat> so I was issued a summons um, to, to, to hand it over. Oh, so isn't that interesting? Now, so even the yeah, parliamentary yeah. investigation was was not given full access to this information. Well, one of the reasons might be because of the figures that you were able to ascertain, which was that the government land valuation for the estate in 2002 was $109.72 per square metre, which is... uh, but uh, the um, but actually the Victorian values uh, from the land per square metre in uh, the commercial value, Real Estate Institute of Victoria, was that in 2002 it was actually $1,640 <laughs> per square metre and ultimately it was uh, uh, it was actually sold at $89.95 per square metre. So it does sound like the Victorian public, taxpaying public or the public in general, were a bit short-changed. Yes, that's right. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, yes, that's that's exactly right. The 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 land the land that was sold to the developer uh, on the Kensington estate was about one. Uh, it was sold at about one twentieth of its commercial value at the time. Now, the government 
DHHS or DHS as it was then um, justified that on the basis that it was a very high risk uh, development um, and for the know, private and developer, even though it is yeah. prime inner city land. Exactly, um, but at the time they're saying this is the first time we've we've built private housing on public housing state land, and that, you know the developer needs needs to be given every assistance. What did <laughs> they think that because it was public uh, land like that that they, they'd get cooties or something? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, they certainly thought the private residents were going to want to live there. Um, <laughs> Ridiculous. Uh, yeah, well, uh, look, I mean, that was their rationale, right? Mm. Um, and and they gave the developer every assistance possible in that regard. Uh, they also allowed the yield um, of uh, private housing to increase substantially mm. uh, over, over that period. And the thing that we found really most alarming was that the... The developer's profit on on Kensington. Um, I mean, ordinarily a developer would ex- expect sort of between fifteen and twenty percent uh, return on their investment. Uh, that's in Australia. It, interestingly, in Germany, it's sort of more ten to fifteen mm. percent. It's interesting how you know expectations become kind of solidified. Uh, Australian developers have high expectations. Anyway. Um, the final stage of the Kensington develop, development um, yielded a 50% uh, profit um, return to the developer. And across wow. the board, we calculated that it was about 37, 37.5% to be precise. So, so, so return on investment. So that was an outcome of very low uh, uh, land sale price combined with a dramatic increase in the yield of private housing, combined with um, way better than expected sales. So (laughs) So if we look at that particular uh, example, Kensington, your investigation, your and the other panel members' investigation into this, you also found my, my, that... My research team, yeah. Your research team, yeah. What you yeah. found was that the amount of people who came back who were original public tenants for that area in Kensington, the amount that came back was actually quite low. 20%. Yes. Um, that's right. So mm. and, and see, look, it's... it's it's very interesting how all of this gets spun, isn't it? Um, so you know, you, you pull you pull people out of their homes, um, kids out of school, you, you know, you, and, and and often um, people are relocated, you know, quite a long way away. So new new doctor, new new community health centre, you know, new new everything, new schools, and often. They're relocated for like you know four years, five years, and so when the opportunity to move back, or should I say, if the opportunity to move back is offered, uh, it's, it's another massive relocation, and a lot of people yeah. just don't want to do that. Yet. Yeah, yeah, it's unrealistic. So now, and, now, and the, because we've got, but then, but then. 
Yeah. The government cites that as success of the program because obviously people are happy where they've moved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can see where they're, they're going with that. I was going to say, Kate, because we've got very little time left, I really want to now con- I mean, concentrate on the alternatives that that uh, are possible to this renewal plan because there's this belief yeah. that, you know, it's a fait accompli, it's a great idea. I have heard that, you know, people who work in construction think it's going to be a great boon but um, and they're convinced. But in actual fact, one, there's a, a sell-off of public assets, which is you'll never get them in return. The government seems to think that it's a win-win because they don't have to put their hands in their pockets, uh, yeah. even though there's a reduction in uh, 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 places for public housing and it's uh, politically uh, undermining the whole concept of public housing. Uh, well, what are the alternatives? Well, <clears throat> there's a range of alternatives. Um, I'd just like to say to to the people in the construction industry that support it, construction can happen on any level and it doesn't really matter to the union movement and to to workers whether they're building private or public housing, surely. Uh, So so just a fact of jobs doesn't mean that it's a, a good thing in itself. Um, what we're advocating first, obviously, is is not selling the land uh, and building more public housing. <laughs> <laughs> Simple. <laughs> yeah, not that complicated. Uh, <clears throat> still jobs, still jobs for the construction industry, but we build more public housing <laughs> rather rather than private housing on this increasingly scarce public land particularly when it's in the inner city and in the middle suburbs. It's valuable, it's well-resourced, it's, you know, it's close to public transport, it's got schools, pools, libraries, you know, <clears throat> community health centres, all sorts of things around it. The idea, of course, <clears throat> um, of, 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 and they're surrounded by private residents, so the idea of building more private residences on those pieces of land is actually kind of ludicrous. So what do you do? You build more public housing there. That's the first thing. Um, there's, I mean, there's a few other suggestions that we make um, in the papers. Um, the first one, obviously, is increasing public funding. Um, the second is um, establishing a, a revenue stream for the government um, for upgrades to you know, a new social housing construction by um, building by constructing build-to-rent um housing uh which could be you know affordable or even market housing if the government was insistent on having a you know a um a, a revenue stream built to rent on a leasehold so it, it then gets managed by a by a you know a housing association um or even building private housing on public land that is leased um to the private sector. Uh, like in gone. England, like in England, where they have ninety-nine year leases. Yeah, that yeah. sort of I idea. Mean, there are lots of, look, there are lots of alternatives. I mean, look, quite frankly, I, I, I personally have trouble with any of these models that build private housing uh, on public land. Um, but we offer these to the government as ways of retaining public ownership and getting some kind of revenue stream um, into you know, to fund upgrades. 
Because the government is so damned insistent on not funding public housing itself. So it's not uh, money. So it's not money. It's actually they are ideologically wedded to the idea of not doing public housing. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> That's right. But but it's 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 a very it's a very hard discussion to get into to start advocating um, selling or or, or or in any way privatising public land in order to allow some element of, of, of you know, some kind of compromise and uh, you know a, a, between between the current totally ideologically driven program and a, a better outcome for um, public housing tenants. Well, it's I mean, fascinating, it's isn't it? It's like they're yeah. irrational. It doesn't make it doesn't make any sense, other than, as you say, um, uh, an ideological foundation. That's right. So, one of the other things that we're doing um, is uh, encouraging people to resist. Um, uh, the government is determined to go ahead with this. You're absolutely right. Um, uh, what, what we want to do is open a space for discussion, open a space for information to come out so that people can make up their own minds about this and ultimately for people to resist it. It's a bad program. It shouldn't be allowed to go ahead and... Now, we are encouraging people to stay in their homes, uh, to get legal advice, and to do everything in their power to resist this program because it's wrong. Thanks for talking to us today, Kate. I know it's early. Thank you very much for spending some time with us. It's early. And I would say to your listeners, um, do everything you can to, to resist this program because it's the only way that it's going to happen. For the November 2018 state elections, Victorian socialists and left-wingers are coming together to get a socialist elected to the upper house for the northern metropolitan region. Leading the ticket is long-time Yarra councillor Stephen Jolly, followed by Moreland councillor Sue Bolton from the Socialist Alliance and Colleen Bolger from the Socialist Attorney. Victorian socialists will officially be launching our campaign on Saturday the 12th of May from 7pm at the Grace Darling Hotel at 114 Smith Street in Collingwood. Come along to find out more about our campaign and how you can get involved. It will be an opportunity to hear from the candidates and local community residents on the importance of getting a socialist into Parliament and presenting a political alternative from the major capitalist parties. A 3CR supporter. During the 3CR Radiothon for 2018, Spoken Word presents an evening of live poetry featuring the outstanding talents of Jennifer Compton, Andy Jackson, Tariro Mavondo and Kylie Supsky, plus an open mic recorded for broadcast on 3CR, Tuesday 15th of May from 7pm at Grub Food Van, 87 Moore Street, Fitzroy, and all proceeds go to 3CR Community Radio. Help keep independent, progressive voices on the air. And we've come to the end of Solidarity Breakfast, uh, where we had uh, some words from Jacob Gritch, a great speech about uh, the, 
well, they call it uh, protective industries, uh, turning uh, Australia's manufacturing uh, workers and uh, factories into supporters of war, effectively. Uh, if it's uh, if peace broke out, we'd all be sad because uh, we'd lose our jobs. That's the idea. Coming up, uh, then we had uh, a speech from the May the 9th from uh, Karen Batt uh, from the uh, CPSU. Uh, we followed with uh, a chat with Don Sutherland about the budget, the ridiculous budget, followed by uh, Kevin on uh, This Is The Week That Was, and then we talked public housing. And I was just trying to find some information about a rally down at uh, Northcote uh, about uh, the sale of the land down there, um, but I can't find it, which is quite irritating, actually. Uh, because then I'd be able to tell you where to turn up and what to do. Um, I think it's in the afternoon, and I think it's on the 23rd of May, but uh, that's uh, not being being very authoritative, is it? Uh, someone might like to ring in and tell us. Uh, coming up uh, next is uh, Asia Pacific Currents. Now, uh, because Don talked about... Uh, Peggy Seeger, I thought I might go out with uh, a Peggy Seeger song. I'm going to be an engineer. So there. No, there's no so there there. Okay. Talk to you next week. When I was a little girl, I wished I was a boy. I tagged along behind the gang and wore me corduroys. Everybody said I only did it to annoy, but I was going to be an engineer. Mama told me, can't you be a lady? Your duty is to make me the mother of a pearl. Wait until you're older, dear, and maybe you'll be glad that you're a girl. A dainty as a dress and statue, gentle as a Jersey cow. Smooth as silk, gives creamy milk. Learn to coo, learn to moo. That's what you do to be a lady now. When I went to school, I learned to write and how to read some history, geography, and home economy. And typing is a skill that every girl is sure to need to while away the extra time until the time to breed. Then they had the nerve to say, but would you like to be? I says, I'm gonna be an engineer. No, you only need to learn to be a lady. The duty isn't yours for to try and run the world. An engineer could never have a baby. Remember, dear, that you're a girl. She's smart for a woman I wonder how she got that way You get no choice, you get no voice Just stay mum, pretend you're dumb And that's how you come to be a lady today Then Jimmy come along and we set up a conjugation We were busy every night with love and recreation I spent the day at work so he could get his education Well now he's an engineer he says, I know you'll always be a lady. It's the duty of my darling to love me all her life. Could an engineer look after or obey me? Remember, dear, that you're my wife. Well, as soon as Jimmy got a job, I began again. Then happy at me to lay the year or so. And then the morning that the twins were born, Jimmy says to them, kids, your mother was an engineer. You owe it to the kids to be a lady Dainty as a dish rag, faithful as a child Stay at home, you got to mind the baby 
Remember you're a mother now Well every time I turn around It's something else to do It's cook a meal, mend a soft, sweep a floor or two I listen in to Jimmy Young It makes me want to spew I was gonna be an engineer 